Hello, everybody. Welcome to season three, episode six of the Professional Insight Podcast. My name is Brandon Curry. I'm Jeff Collins. I'm Josh Bond. And Trevor Lindy. We have uh, one of our guests back from season two, um, uh, Grant LaFleche from the St. Catherine Standards Niagara Dailies, award-winning journalist for all the chairs. All right. What award did you end up winning? Because that happened after our podcast, didn't it? That, that because was of our podcast, I, I think. I think when we did the podcast last time, we were in the middle of the nominations, but we right. got two national newspaper awards, uh, the Michener, which is like the Canadian uh, Pulitzer, uh, Ontario Newspaper Awards, Canadian Journalism Foundation, and Canadian Association of Journalists. It was a big year. Not a lot of awards, yeah. Not a wow, lot. good for you. Congratulations. Good for you. We'll get a podcast awesome. award for you after this one. <laughs> here we go your episode actually last one aired uh that would be november 13th 2019 free so, covid yeah free covid so um yeah that was a different time uh, <laughs> I mean, it, feels like a, it feels like a lifetime ago <laughs> so okay where do i begin um uh, we've um we've all been following you um, I mean, we, I, we followed you anyway, but that now we follow you more um, because of your statistics and the data that you were starting to reveal on COVID when the Niagara Health System wasn't revealing any of the data or releasing any of the data. Am I correct? Uh, sort of, yeah. So when the pandemic started, um, it became very obvious that we needed to be able to give readers as clear a picture of what was going on as possible. Because you may recall, even though, like I like to joke, the last four months has been the longest year of my life, um, that the early days, so I'm thinking, you know, February, March, when this thing really started to gain steam, it was really hard to get credible information um, and information that uh, was um, usable to, to, to get people to understand what was happening in part because officials were not releasing it um, there was no accurate data on cases on deaths on hospitalizations and that was in part because the healthcare system was completely caught off guard they were not ready whatsoever i mean they said there's a pandemic plan but there, there really wasn't they didn't have any idea how to cope with this so um, what we had to do, there was some information out there, but you had to go hunting for it. So in, in March, especially, if you wanted to know how many cases were in Niagara, how many people have died, where are these people getting sick? We had to pull that from a lot of different sources. So I started doing, um, I started pulling data from public health, Niagara Health System, Ontario Health, um, from uh, long-term care homes. And we were able to start building a database. I did nothing but kind of statistics and analytics, probably for three weeks to build a functioning database. Um, and part of what happened was, as we began to put that information out, the, the Niagara Health was the first. Um, Niagara Health began to release much more comprehensive data. So we began to see how many people were actually hospitalized, how many had died in hospital and how many uh, had, had been in the ICU and that sort of thing. The uh, public health department was kind of much slower to release that kind of information. They eventually did, and now the public health website is pretty robust, and there's a ton of information um, that you can go playing around with. But initially, we had to do it all. 
And um, if, for instance, nobody was going to tell us how many people had died in, in March or April. And it was really tricky because public health was releasing some, eventually some death numbers. The hospital was re releasing some other, but they weren't the same data sets. So there was overlap, but they were also different. So we had to learn how to navigate and know if, if public health said there was, was 20 deaths and the hospital said there was 22, you know, what does that actually mean to get the accurate number and, and actually build that, you know, that infection curve. You've seen those graphs, those kind of graphs where the numbers go up and then it flattens out. We were the first to publish um, regularly the local infection rate curve so you could see what was going on with the virus. Um, so, I mean, really, I went from doing kind of gumshoe, hard-boiled investigative work straight into data analytics once it started, uh, and I've been doing it ever since. Am I right, too, that you're trying to find out uh, the names and, and people of everyone who's passed to in Niagara? I think you've, you've mentioned that a couple times on Twitter. Yeah, so... Make we a statistic, really, right? Yeah, we've, we've put together an in-memoriam page. Um, 64 people with the virus have died so far, as I usually were right at, at least 64. Because um, based on our understanding of the numbers, deaths have been underreported. So there may actually be more than 64, but we don't know for sure. But of those 64, um, <coughs> my view of it really is um, these people should not be a number. Like these are 64 people who had, you know, families, had, you know, parents or had kids or grandkids. Um, they had friends. There's 64 groups of friends and family in this community who are grieving. Um, through that entire period, if you've known anybody or if you've lost anybody, whether it's from the virus or not in the last four months, you can't have a normal funeral for that person because yeah. of um, infection control measures. So you have to imagine, there was one story I did about the, um, the, the Shanks, uh, Barbara and Edward Shank, who lived at um, Lundy Manor in Niagara Falls, and they died, I think, a week apart from COVID. And it just highlighted just how awful this is for people. So, so Edward Shank died first. And then a week later, his wife passed away. Both had um, COVID-19. But you can imagine for, um, for Barbara, his wife, she was effectively alone for that week, right? She's really sick. Her husband has died. Her daughters cannot go see her because at that point, Lundy Manor was in complete lockdown. And so she spent the last week of her life uh, with a terrible illness, dying without family around her. Um, and you know, as the virus got really bad, she couldn't breathe. She was she had the symptoms of delirium and some of the other things that impact, especially older people. So it's important to us to try to get those names and stories out to the community so that Niagara knows you know, what we've lost and, and probably what we're gonna gonna continue to lose until there's a vaccine. So now Grant how, Grant, how many how bad do you think the under under reporting or under statistic the death and even uh, infection rate is here in the region? Um, there's, there's, yeah, there's two metrics that are, are very obviously underreported. Um, one of them is deaths, and that, that is principally because not everyone who has COVID-19 and is sick to the point where it's lethal is in the hospital. So right now we know that at least 64 people have died. Um, only 40 of them died at the hospital. And only 39 of those 40 are Niagara residents. There was one early death who was somebody from outside the region. Um, so the problem is if somebody, say, died in a long-term care home or died in, you know, at community living or something, and say they didn't get tested or that test was not properly reported, um, 
you'll have to excuse the noise, there's some construction going on out here. Um, we wouldn't necessarily know about it and, and it may not necessarily get reported to public health. I, I don't think on the, on the score of deaths, underreporting is, you know, there's not like dozens of extra deaths that we don't know about, but it's very likely, I would say, you know, probably in single digits, there's, there's, there may be some that we, just in terms of the totals, we don't know about. Um, the other place where we know for sure there's severe underreporting is on testing. Um, and that's because even though the bulk of testing is being done at the, the three testing sites in Niagara, at St. Catharines, Niagara Falls, and Welland Hospitals, um, not all the testing is reported to public health. So a long-term care home may do its own testing or, you know, you may go to your doctor and say, geez, you know, like I, you know, I have these symptoms and he may, he or she may do the test for you right there at the office and send it in. The test results have to be reported to public health, but the number of tests are not. And why that's important is one of the really important statistics that, that you and your listeners need to pay attention to as this pandemic rolls on into the fall is called the percent positives. So you want to know how many, the percentage of how many people have been tested are actually positive for COVID-19. Right. The, the threshold, the, the number that if you see it begin to reach that level is to start getting alarmed is if it starts to get close to 10%. If your percent positive is 10% or higher, we have dramatic spread of the virus uh, in our community. Now, right now it's less than 1%. I think the last week it was 0.7%. I think total for the whole pandemic, it's like 0.3. It's very low because we've done a pretty good job of infection control or, uh, until recently uh, in Niagara. So yeah, the underreporting of stats is tricky and it's even more tricky because the provincial government kind of plays games with how it releases some of this data. So um, it, it's, it's a full-time job to kind of stay on top of, of the numbers and, and try to get them as accurately as possible. So when, and Thanks. To, just to go on that, I mean, there, there's a couple things there. Uh, thank you for saying that because there's a lot of people that freak out and say, oh, our cases went up. It's like, well, no, they're doing more testing. So of course, oh, unless you're Donald Trump. If you're Donald Trump, you do not test and cases go away. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah. So here's just, just here's the thing about that. And it, it you know, I, I've kind of turned into a, I've always been a bit of a numbers nerd, but now I'm like a super data nerd because it's like my job every day. And I can't You're wait right. till it's over and I can just cover political corruption that doesn't involve statistics all the time. <laughs> You're uh, a two-way, two uh, two-legged yeah. analysis of uh, variants. <laughs> um, when Donald Trump says, oh, we have more cases because we do more tests, that's only like half true as most things with Donald Trump. It's, there's right. always like a part, partial truth there. So yes, if you do broad-based testing, like really broad-based testing, you would expect you're going to find more because there's so many people who um, have no symptoms or have such mild symptoms that they're not, they're not thinking that they have COVID-19. So that's how you would catch those. But here's the thing. Our testing has gone up giant in Ontario in the last, say, month and a half. Um, the Niagara Health System used to do 150, maybe 200 people a day. There were a couple of days where they would do three or 400 people, but mostly it was less than 200. Now it's like four, five, 600 people going through there a day. So many tests are being done that there's a backlog now in getting results to people. Like that slowed down the reporting of the test results uh, by the labs. Um, <laughs> but our case count has not shot up, which is our, that percent positive has remained very low. So, so even though we're doing more testing, we're not finding more cases 
because we've tamped down the virus um, in, in a much more efficient way than the United States has. In the United States, that percent positive is like 20% in some places or higher. Um, I think Texas today just broke the record for the most cases in a single day. Um, so when Donald Trump says you find more cases when you test, that's actually only really true if the virus is in widespread circulation. If the virus is not there, most of those tests should come back negative, not positive. And right. they're not really practicing social distancing in oh, most no. states either. Like they're hugging each other and saying, we'll keep this. It's crazy. They, they don't even, like, we have this bizarre debate right now in Niagara about masks and, and, and regional council can't, we'll find out tonight is one of the stories I'm working on for later today, whether they, they get their act together on it. Um, but in the States, it's like, they can't even get people to wear masks, never mind social distance. Uh, so, <laughs> it, you know what it's like, and I've said this to, to, to a lot of people, it's like watching the fall of the Roman Empire in real time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. If you know your history, you know, one of the things that happened to Rome was that it faced a whole series of crises after the Republic fell and it became the empire. And each time it got clobbered by something, it lost its ability to bounce back to, to its previous normal until it reached a point where the whole thing just fell on its face. And you look at the United States, and I don't you know, want to sound like Nostradamus or anything here, but look, 9-11, <laughs> uh, uh, the 2008 housing crash, the, uh, the Iraq war, the Afghanistan war, her, you know, you go back, you can go further back to Hurricane Katrina, Donald Trump, and now this. Imagine what happened to the United States if there's a, another Katrina-sized hurricane hit the eastern seaboard. Well, that it, big earthquake that scientists keep saying is going to hit California. Yeah. Imagine <laughs> what will happen to the United States in that circumstance right now. Well, and, they're, and they're calling out China and everything and all that, and the trade wars are starting up. And well, what's interesting about China, we know, we know that China was where the first major outbreaks happened in, in Wuhan. But more interesting uh, uh, to me is that research being done on um, sewage around, in different cities around the world is actually finding the genetic traces of COVID-19 prior to the Wuhan outbreak. And hmm. what, what some researchers are suggesting is that COVID-19 has kind of been out there it just needed the circumstances in its favor to really spread, which is what happened in Wuhan. And then it, it really got moving and started going around the world. But Look, a lot of viruses, it may have been in the environment for a long, long time. In different well, the big rumor is people think it was around here around Christmas this year, like in Agra. Everybody talks about it. They say, well, I think I might have had it. You, you never know, really. But that's a lot of people talk about, you know. And the it's hard to know if that's, I mean, that's it's a possibility. It's just going to be so hard to prove because we yeah. know who, that the antibodies that we produce naturally to the infection um, aren't sticking around very long. So if you were somebody who say, say it was in circulation in as early as December, and you were somebody who got it and thought you just had a pneumonia or just the worst flu of all time, um, you may have had antibodies for a few months, but if they tested you now, they may not find them. So it's, it's gonna be really tough to know if, if COVID was sort of uh, globally spreading around prior to the major outbreak in Wuhan. Isn't that the next next thing they're looking to do? Is antibody testing too? Something to um, talk about right now? Yes and no. I mean, the, the, here's the thing. I mean, if you talk to the scientists, so uh, when you talk to researchers, antibody testing kind of in some media and certainly on social media, people think that the antibody is the thing that's going to save us, right? In other words, what you could do is if you or I had had the virus, we have antibodies, that in theory means we're immune. So we can kind polio? of go about Yeah. So we could go about our daily lives, and then if, if Brandon hadn't had the virus yet, well, he can't do some things because he doesn't have 
the natural immunity. What they're actually finding is that the natural immunity to COVID-19 doesn't last very long, which is yeah. why there's such a drive to get the vaccine together. Because unlike some other diseases where if you catch like the measles, if you catch the measles and survive it, uh, you're going to have natural antibodies for a really long time. Um, but even with SARS, we know it, it lasted less than less than 10 years in some cases. And in COVID, it appears to be a matter of months. Um, so antibodies are not, they're more useful to try to determine how, how widespread infections may have been amongst asymptomatic people. But as a defense against the virus, no, it, it's not really proving to be of any use. So like Trump said, it's a really smart virus. Oh, my God. That, well, <laughs> but he passed that test, right? He passed that test, the, the yeah, cognitive the test. test. He and the virus, passed. they both identified an elephant. And <laughs> you sure he wasn't talking about a COVID test like he says about Joe Biden? <laughs> he was wrong. He was wrong. He was a COVID test, not a cognitive test. It, it's so strange that we're, that we're dealing with this global... I mean, this is the worst global health crisis since the 1918 uh, flu pandemic, right? Um, as Trump would say, 1917. I was going to say. For some reason, he refuses to accept he got the date wrong. Yeah, um, one year and, earlier. And yet the, the big part of our conversation, um, which is dominated by, you know, Trump's craziness on a daily basis. If he loses the election in November, will he even accept the results and step down? Um, you know, whether or not. You know, why is the president telling people to drink bleach? You know, I mean, it, that this is even part of our conversation. Yeah. Is this even part of our conversation? To me, it's just so bizarre. Uh, because the, the seriousness of this thing is overwhelming. And that we keep having to get distracted because the most powerful man on the planet just says crazy things day after day after day. Uh, is in some, some respects dumb as a post. Yeah. I mean, if you if you think that, you know... <laughs> Sticking a UV light up your backside is somehow going to cure you of a respiratory <laughs> infection. Uh, I got news for you. You got problems. <laughs> I can't help you. Well, even that hydroxychloroquine, whatever he's telling everybody that he's taking it, and he's been taking it for a while. We know it's well, he did a treatment. He's taking it because he recommended it. <clears throat> an old, an old, uh, a good friend of mine who's an old boxing sparring partner uh, used to train with me for a long time. He spent years in Thailand. He was a Thai boxer uh, for a long time. And uh, because he was in Thailand, he had to take hydroxychloroquine for malaria, which is what it's for. Yep. Yep. Um, and the thing about malaria drugs, um, whether it's hydrochloroquine or, or mefloquine, which is another popular one that was uh, used in use in the military, it has a lot of bad side effects. Like they cause delirium. You can't, often you can't drink alcohol with them because you'll fly into like a psychotic rage. Um, and he said every time he had to take the hydrochloroquine, hydroxychloroquine it just messed him up like he and he was taking it at high enough dose to fight a potential malaria infection and he said to me no one who is in a position of power should be taking this drug if they don't need it because right. of what it can actually do to you so he surmised that either trump was lying and he wasn't taking it at all which is you know if you know anything about donald trump that's probably the case or if he was taking it he was probably taking it in such a low dose that it wouldn't do a damn thing to a virus anyway. But or hold on a second, Grant. Yeah, and I mean, <laughs> it, would it would explain it would a explain. lot of things, right? <laughs> it would, but he did, I mean, listen, he did pass the Montreal cognitive test and he correctly was able to <laughs> come back. Apparently. Did you guys watch the Chris Wallace interview? Yes, we watched I watched it. The Chris it. Wallace interview is maybe the most bizarre interview of a sitting president I have ever seen. 
is that the is that the one with person, man, woman? Yes. Maybe okay. Yeah. Like there, there's two there's two presidential interviews now. I think that historians will look at and go, "Oh my god." Um, one of them, of course, is the famous Nixon Frost uh, interview after Richard Nixon left office with David Frost, and now this one with Chris Wallace. <laughs> Um, and, and for different reasons, right? I mean, the, 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 the Nixon-Frost interview is interesting because Nixon, you, you learn in that thing just how much Nixon hated the Washington Post, uh, how much he hated Woodward and Bernstein, and how much he refused to accept responsibility for the corruption and, and his own behavior that, that, that destroyed his presidency. I think when historians look back at the Wallace uh, interview, they're just going to think, you know, this was President Nero. I mean, you know, <laughs> President Kamala. It's not making any sense. You know, oh, that, and the election's coming up, which is the scariest part. Like, can you imagine him getting back in again? Like, oh my God. It's possible. I mean, I know. That's what's a, crazy. A lot of the polling last time around showed, showed Hillary. Absolutely. Front. Um, and of course, you know, because of the way the electoral system works in the U.S. Electoral College, uh, Trump was able to squeak through. Uh, it, could, it could happen again. I mean, one of the more distressing um, polling things that you see is that Trump uh, is still doing relatively well amongst white male voters in the right. U.S. Um, now that may not be enough to save him if women and people of color come out in droves, but you never know. I mean, as I like to say, 2020 is the, the worst year ever. Oh, well, it's, it's, what do you mean? He's done like, more. Guys, 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 we got to get back to COVID, all right? Oh, yeah. like, not, not the U.S. election. Um, that could be for another one. I was going to say, we'll have you back on closer yeah, we'll to November. On. We got to get back to, there's a lot of questions regarding Niagara's, right. even provincial members. So, so what's, what, what, what do you figure uh, prompted the uptick in, in uh, recently? Yeah, so we're recording this on July 23rd, which is a Thursday. Yep. And the, the weekend leading to this podcast, we had 10. But we still entered into phase three. Oh, we're entering so, Friday. We're we? entering phase three this yeah, Friday. Tomorrow, yeah. That's right. Yeah, Brandon is already there. <laughs> yeah, I'm just actually, you know what? I just before I answer that question, I'm just going to pull up the see if they've updated today's numbers. So we 103 can, in Ontario today. Yeah, so that's I'm just, good. I'm just looking, I'm just loading uh, the St. Catharines or the Niagara data right now. Uh, so we had the 10 on Saturday. So only only three today. So that's kind of more in line with, uh, with what we have. But, you know, look, our, our active cases is up to 47. We have no more resolved cases today. So, okay, there's a, there's a whole bunch to unpack here. So let's take a step back. What has caused the recent kind of climbing cases in Niagara? I'm not talking about all of Ontario. Uh, we're just going to focus on Niagara for a minute. We can talk about Ontario later if you like. Um, as stage two began to roll on, you began to see people taking infection control measures a whole lot less seriously, right? right. Um, physical distancing. I mean, I've been to some, uh, so I went to Canadian Tire, um, you know, about a month ago. And as I said on Twitter, it was like playing COVID dodgeball uh, because people were not physically distancing. Staff would walk right up to you. Uh, nobody was wearing masks really. Um, I haven't been back since and I probably won't be uh, for a while. Um, but that's, and then, you know, we know there were the big gatherings at Sunset Beach. Um, right. No, you know, despite Jim Diodati's protests up until today, really until yesterday, uh, we know the tourist district has been jammed with people um, this weekend in particular. And by the way, <laughs> the stuff we've seen recently about Clifton Hill and the parkway, because we had those, we had those big gatherings of people in Clifton Hill. 
Uh, it was Columbia, Columbia's Independence Day on the weekend. So uh, there was a huge crowd along the parkway of Colombians with soccer jerseys and flags and everything. If, if COVID spread amongst those, we won't know for a couple of weeks. And that's the thing to always keep in mind. There's this echo effect. If, if, if Brandon got infected today, um, he wouldn't necessarily, if, if he shows symptoms, he wouldn't show them for up to two weeks. Then he has to get tested. Then the test result has to come back. So there's a further delay. And then his result comes back positive. So, you know, we won't know yet. But we do know that people were, were being complacent about it. We do know there were gatherings, people were not social distancing and, and not wearing masks, um, that people are being uh, increasingly careless about it, which is why the mask bylaws is, is now become an important thing. Um, and the, the, you know, health experts, including Dr. Herji at Public Health has been saying, look, as you open up, as you have more economic activity and more social activity, virus spread is going to rise. It's inevitable. Uh, which is why it's so important to to do the physical distancing and the hand hygiene and, and the mask uh, wearing. So the concern right now is that uh, as we enter stage three, kind of unless people get their act together and start taking this more seriously, we're going to see those numbers continue to rise. And one of the numbers that you want to watch really is um, the number of active cases. Because our active case, that's the, that's the number of people who are currently sick with the virus or known. It just like doubled this week, right? It doubled in 10 days. It doubled yeah. in 10 days. Um, That's also and, from 10, 10, 10 to 14 days ago though, right? Uh, you're in a tin can there, Brandy. I'll try that again. While you're so eating. That's, that's, be, that's because we're, that's 10 to 14 days back to like you said before. So we have to look what happened 10 to 14 days ago. Yes. So, yeah. The, the caveat to any of your COVID data, is that an infection confirmed today is somebody who was infected somewhere in the last two weeks, usually. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you're looking, when you look at our active case, and that's kind of the frightening part, that's the part that makes you, you know, kind of raise your eyebrows is, you know, what, what is the situation gonna be like in two weeks, you know? And, and one of the things that has changed is we have relatively few large outbreaks. There's five outbreaks right now. Three of them are at long-term care. One is at a communal setting. One is due to some kind of social gathering, a party or something. Um, but none of them have big numbers like we saw back in the spring. Most of the new cases are community spread. And that means that, and, and a substantial percentage of those cases come from an unknown source, which means public health can't even go back and find the person who may have been uh, patient zero in that case which means that there's, there's unidentified cases in the community. Right. And, and now everybody's phones got tracing apps on them too. They just added, right? Like you can look on your phone and see a tracing app for yourself. Well, okay. So you can take it off, but it's on there. Cause I just saw mine. Here's the, here's the thing about the tracing apps. If you talk in, if you talk to public health experts and not to politicians or tech heads who think that everything can be solved with a smartphone, um, the tracing apps are not terribly effective. No. Um, the, the places where they were somewhat useful and, and, and only somewhat were places where there were no privacy concerns, no privacy protections built into them. So uh, in, you know, in South Korea, in Taiwan, um, they had tracing apps that used global positioning uh, systems to track you, right? And so they could tell if, if you had the virus, they knew exactly where you were all the time because that information is being transmitted from your phone to their health ministry. Um, the ones that we're talking about in Ontario, <clears throat> the way it works and, and people have to be, you know, I think people are going to get this on their phone and think, well, if I never get an alert, I'm safe. And that's going to be unfortunately 
drastically wrong. All it does is it, it sends a, so if you and I have the app on our phones, um, our, when our phones come in within a certain proximity of each other for the Bluetooth signal, the phones will communicate and say that we each have the app, right? Then if one of us tests positive and we voluntarily put into the app that we have been tested positive, any of the contacts that that phone has made while you were out and about will get an alert that says someone somewhere at some point that you were near enough for a Bluetooth signal to reach uh, says that they have COVID-19. Go to your public what? health department. You're What's that go distance? I mean, it depends on your phone. I mean, it's usually what, a few meters? Yeah, is it, it is? Okay. It's, it's probably more than that Bluetooth. Yeah. Well, no, the antenna is supposed to work up to 30 meters, but think of yourself, if you ever have a Bluetooth speaker and you're playing on that Bluetooth speaker as you walk away, how, yeah. Yeah, yeah. right, it starts to cut out on you. So it's up to 30 meters, but let's be honest, like I've got a Bluetooth speaker sitting, you know, 10 feet away from me and it could potentially be choppy. Yeah, or you go around a corner and it... Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's still somewhat helpful because if I did have a contact, why not go get a test? Because anyone can get tested really but right it, now. So, but you have to understand the way contact tracing works. So you show up to public health with your phone and you say, hey, my phone has said that some point in the last two weeks, someone somewhere that I have been near enough for a Bluetooth signal to find my phone says they have COVID-19. Are you showing any symptoms? No. Do you know, if, you know, have you been near anybody you're aware of that has the virus? No. Were you wearing a mask the whole time? Yes. Um, were you physically distancing? Yes. Were you hand washing? Yes. So you're already a very low risk person. And the problem is public health does not know who this person who says they tested positive is. There's not even a code in the app that, you know, to protect that person's privacy from you but that oh. public health could use to look up and say, oh, it's, you know, it's Joe Smith. I'm going to call Joe Smith and we can do our contact tracing. This does not allow public health to do their job. And it doesn't really help you as the user to know if you've been exposed. Because so, it's privacy protection, basically. It kills it. The, the privacy protection has made it effectively useless. And, and, you know, you look at a place like Germany, which had um, an app like this. It just got rid of it because it was so useless. In Alberta, they have one like it, but nobody's using it. Um, and public health officials say that it's just not the way to go. If, if it was more robust and you had no privacy protections, it might be useful, but then you got a privacy issue. Yeah. So I guess, so the key piece is when we're looking at data, we got to look at the positive tests, right? The pot, what's that phrase? The percent, the percent positive, yeah. It's, it's, one of the, it's one of the key indicators. So you want to look at a couple of things. You want to look at the percent positives uh, because that'll tell and you. And the active cases, eh? And so it's percent positive, it's active cases. Um, you know, early on when I was posting a lot of the graphs that you've seen me um, uh, publishing, this was back in I think April or May, and I pointed out that one of the two lines on most of the graphs that you wanna watch is active cases versus resolved cases. Because as more and more people um, recover and fewer people are getting sick, the, the line that represents uh, active cases and the line that represents resolved cases should cross as the resolved cases or uh, the active cases begins to fall. Right. Well, what's happening now is that as active cases begin to rise, you know, if it keeps going that way, we may see those lines cross again, but for the wrong reason. And, and so that's one of the trends um, that, that you, you also want to watch. 
And then finally, if you're looking at the curve, which is again, that curve graph, uh, which people have, I understand people seem to have a hard time understanding it because it, it's not looking at totals. It's looking at the infection rate, which is a different, it's the same data set, it's just expressing it a different way. If that curve line, which is still relatively flat, begins to noticeably angle upwards, then we know we're in trouble because that means the infection rate is accelerating. Okay, so how do you discertain between a death that occurred directly from COVID uh, rather than someone yeah. who died with COVID? Uh, the short answer is you can't. Right. Um, so, so you'll notice the way that we've always reported it is it's 64 people with the virus who have died. Um, in, in, not in every case, but in many cases, especially when you're talking about the elderly, they have what doctors will call co comorbidities. That means they have other health problems yeah. that have now been exacerbated by uh, the COVID-19 infection. Um, so it, it could be that they had COVID-19 and then their breathing got so compromised, they had a heart attack or an aneurysm, and that's the actual cause of death. Very often they cannot tell if you have other health problems. Some of them are gonna be straight up because of COVID. Some of them may be, uh, you know, COVID exacerbated something, but the way the tally is done is if you have the virus and you die while you're still sick with it, you count as a COVID-19 death. Okay. Question, what do you think happens in September at school? You know, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's you know, we, we don't have the same obsession with reopening schools as, as the Americans do. Um, I think everybody wants to see the kids back in school because it's better for sure. Uh, but, you know, there, there's, there's a couple of unknowns. First, we don't really have a good idea at all if kids spread the virus at the same rate as adults. We know, we know teenagers do. You know, teenagers spread the virus as much as adults do, which, which puts high school teachers uh, at somewhat more risk. We don't know what it is for younger kids. Um, we know that younger kids, at, on the whole, do not suffer um, nearly as serious symptoms as older people do, but they could well spread it to their teachers. Um, so you're, you're really, you're kind of playing with a little bit of gasoline and matches here, and they're going to have to be very careful about how they open the schools to keep the kids, the parents, and the people in the kids' homes safe. And that's going to have to be a lot of physical distancing. It's going to have to be mask wearing. It's going to have to be you know, a lot of the usual activities that you would associate with the school day uh, will get truncated or not done at all, again, until there's a vaccine. Or they may not open. I mean, if the numbers go the wrong way um, in by September, they may not open at all. I'm skeptical that a lot of kids are going to go back. I know there's going to be people that have to. They have no choice because of employment. But I, I hear more and more stories of people getting together with other families and they're hiring a separate teacher to teach in their basements and stuff like this going on right now. And they're setting it up right now for September because we're a month away, really. Yep. And, and, I, I, and you can understand, I mean, if you guys have kids, um, I completely sympathize. I don't, but I can completely sympathize. What do you do in a pandemic when it's not yet under control? And we see how quickly the numbers can turn around. I mean, I tell you, if, if they do open and they're not careful about it and there is a single school in Ontario that has an outbreak, uh, it will be a, just an unmitigated disaster. And I, I completely understand why, why there's some parents are saying, you know, we're just not taking the risk yet. We're not there yet. We're, we're leaning that way right now, to be honest. I don't, I don't blame you. I don't, I don't blame you. I mean, look at, look at, I mean, the one example I keep drawing on is the, the Pioneer Flower Farms outbreak from a few weeks yeah. back in St. Catharines. 
Um, it took a week to infect 65 people uh, who were working in those greenhouses, a week. Well, and the crazy part, if you think about it, March 11th, we had one tested positive person in the NBA, shut everything down, everyone followed suit. Now there's more than that in each of the leagues, and they're opening back up. Like, you know, baseball starts today. Yeah. Baseball starts today. Toronto Blue Jays have no home to play at right now yep. because none of the governments will let them play there. PNC Park said no. So there might be a road warrior team. And everyone's got COVID right now, but they're opening. So, You know, the, the way to start thinking about this, and, and I, I think, is to start having conversations about risk management. There was a, uh, a video put out by the astronaut Chris Hadfield very early on, this would have been in March, where he talked about risk management in the context of being an astronaut, right? I mean, an astronaut can't do his or her job if they're afraid of all the things that could go wrong. And let's face it, when you're in a suit floating in space, there's a lot that can go wrong, really wrong in a hurry. So it, it, you have to think about these things intelligently. You have to say, what is the actual risk that you're facing? What is it you're trying to accomplish? And if you know those two things, then the third thing is, how do I accomplish that thing as safely as possible? We have to understand that until there is a vaccine in widespread circulation, the virus is not going away. It's always going to be. And the question is, is how do we go about our activities, economic, social, school, whatever it is we're doing, in such a way as that we minimize the risk as much as humanly possible. And the, the, the first way we're doing that is uh, physical distancing, hand washing, and masks. And, and right now, those three things are, the edifice of those things is crumbling because people are getting complacent. Um, if you can't do those three, then you can't, you, you're, you failed at your risk assessment, which means you've got to shut things down again. So, you know, I think the one part of the conversation that's not being had by people very much is this larger thought of risk management. What are we going to accept as a level of virus spread, you know, in order to do things? Because there's going to be some level of it. So we have to be able to determine, you know, as this is a threshold we're willing to kind of accept that doesn't overwhelm the healthcare system, doesn't put the most vulnerable at risk, and yet still allows us to do many of the things we used to do. Right. Get the economy rolling. I think that's the biggest concern for, like, for most of the people right now, like the states especially losing so much money in sports they said we're not like the nfl is going to be mind-boggling what they do i have no idea there well nfl is 12 billion dollar industry i know right? and that's why they're going to push it through yeah, yeah. The, the, the difference is is though you have to look at the difference you have to look at the sports mutually exclusive like if you look at what the nhl did smart. I mean, the NHL did it smart they literally bought out Toronto and they bought out Edmonton and basically said 11 teams here or 12 teams here, 12 teams here. You're not leaving your hotel. You're getting tested every single day. You're going to be in your own bubble. Whereas baseball never did that. Baseball wanted to have a fluid transaction back and forth between the, the border. Yeah. So. Well, in basketball, they're, they're going to like one of the worst States. They're going to Florida to, to do it like I, I, uh. in NFL they want fans yeah well I mean that's you know we don't want to diverge too far back into discussing you know the land of madness that is the United States <laughs> but when you when you look at how some sports leagues have managed it I mean that you know in Canada we've got the Canadian elite basketball league that's going to be starting their round robin here in St. Catharines uh, next week um that's risk management, right? I mean, they're actually trying as hard as they can to sort of manage this as best as possible under the circumstances. Um, 
I think what is frustrating many people is they're very anxious to return to our, exactly to our pre-pandemic lives. Yeah. The reality is that's not happening right away. That's, that's going to take some time. Um, even, even if, I mean, if you follow the vaccine stuff, which we haven't really talked about yet, but there's two vaccines that are quite advanced now in terms of their trials. One is the Cambridge Moderna vaccine, and then there's the most promising one at Oxford. Even if those prove they're doing huge clinical studies right now of 30,000 plus people in the United States, which by the way, just as an aside about the United States, if you want to test your vaccine to see if it's really effective, you have to test it while there's a big outbreak, right? Because you need lots and lots of people to take it. Uh, that's why the SARS vaccine never got anywhere because the SARS virus just kind of petered out and there weren't enough people infected to really test it. The United States is a petri dish now, like it's the best lab in the world <laughs> to test these vaccines. But even if um, those vaccines cross the finish line, say in, say in December, right? Optimistically, really optimistically, say December, one of those vaccines is ready to go. It's still gonna take like a year because they gotta manufacture them. They have to distribute them. There's still debate over you know, who gets vaccinated first, uh, which countries will get it first. I mean, you know, there's all these other logistical questions. So you're still looking at a whole other year before you're looking at really mass inoculation. Well, and then what do you do about the non-vaxxers? What about the people who say, I'm not doing that, I'm not taking that? Well, the anti-vaxxers are going to be a giant problem. And I mean, they've yep. always been a giant problem, but they're going to be worse now because um, if, they, if they do not immunize, then you're going to have a segment of the population that not only is going to keep getting sick, but is going to be vectors to spread the virus to people who are most vulnerable, right? The elderly, people with respiratory illnesses, et cetera. Um, so... We, we, my point, though, is we have to kind of get it straight in our heads that this new normal is going to be the status quo for a little while. Did he freeze? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> looks oh, like no. it. Hold on. Welcome, welcome back, Grant. Yeah, thanks. Sorry about that. No problem. So... Uh, um, so we what were, I was we talking about is what we, it was the anti-vaxxers and and so what's the last thing you heard from me before before I died down the uh, anti-vax anti-vax so, and then froze yeah just sure. like this <laughs> we thought you were being dramatic for a while that we could do like on solo hey uh, maybe we should play with Grant we'll just all freeze on our screen don't yeah. move he'll talk <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> nobody's blinking um. <laughs> um yeah, I mean, the anti-vaxxers could be a real problem because if they, once the vaccine rolls out, if they refuse, they're not just going to leave themselves vulnerable. And this is why, to me, they're unspeakably selfish. Hmm. They also are going to be potential vectors for disease spread to those who are most vulnerable, right? The right. elderly, people in long-term care homes, people with chronic respiratory illnesses, but the people who can't get the vaccine, because one of the things with any vaccine is there's always some small percentage of people who for whatever medical reason can't actually legitimately can't take that vaccine which is why the rest of us are supposed to take it so we protect that person right. anti-vaxxers are like donald trump level selfish they are not concerned about anybody but themselves and their tinfoil hat conspiracy theories um and they could be a real problem i think it's less of a problem in canada than it is in the u.s uh, but it is nonetheless potentially a problem because to really get this thing down, you know, we're going to need a really high level of, of community vaccin vaccination. Well, here's the thing too. I mean, uh, my next door neighbor is an ER doctor um, and 
you know, he read a study. So you need about 60 to 70% of the population to take a vaccine in order to get some sort of half decent herd immunity, herd yeah. immunity, right? Otherwise you're just not going to. So CBC did a, did a poll. And as of maybe two weeks ago, 60% of Canadians would not get the vaccine. So that came back. So we're sitting there going, uh, uh Oh, that's not good. Maybe so, just the speed, Brandon. Maybe because they're they're pushing it through. I mean, maybe the initial they're, run they're through people are scared, but but they're still going through. I mean, it's fa- part of the reason it's faster is because some of the red tape has been removed. Correct. But the other reason it's faster is because huge amounts of resources have been poured into finding this one vaccine for this one disease. Yep. Right. Usually, vaccines don't get this kind of funding. I mean, you're talking billions and billions of dollars being poured into uh, getting a vaccine for this thing. One of the frustrating things about anti-vaxxers is, first of all, they're all they're 100% wrong 100% of the time. Um, and the conspiracies get more elaborate. I mean, my favorite one lately has been that there's going to be a microchip in the vaccine that will get injected into you, you know. <laughs> uh, vaccines are truly one of the great accomplishments of human civilization. They're the reasons that we're not dying out from polio and measles and mumps and, and uh, you know, rubella and these other terrible, terrible illnesses that we've managed to get uh, smallpox that we've, we've managed to get under control. Well, one um, of them was making a comeback because of the anti-vaxxers, though, wasn't it? Yes, measles. Measles, measles in the States. Measles in the States and Europe. I mean, kids have died. I mean, measles is, is bad for anybody. It's especially bad for kids. And never mind, it can it can scar you, and it can your brain can get damaged, which we're actually seeing with with COVID now. Um, but people are sort of like, no, you know, because there's there's a trace amounts of mercury or whatever in, in the vaccine. Aluminum. Aluminum, <laughs> yeah, it's going to kill you. And it's like you, it's it's on such small levels. Like we we've managed to tamp out diseases that would have wiped us out otherwise. And people are like, no, I'm going to have my crystal healing and my homeopathy, and that's somehow you know, gonna, gonna help me. Um, we could be creating for ourselves a real problem if we don't get enough. And you know, the other issue there, uh, Brandon, is not just that, you know, we don't know yet how effective the vaccine will be. That was my next The question. most effective vaccine we've ever developed. And by we, I don't mean, you know, the six of us idiots. I mean, like actual scientists who, who do this thing. Um, the most effective vaccine ever created is the measles vaccine, which is like 98% effective in terms of preventing an infection. So if you get lots of, if you get like 90 plus percent of the population vaccinated against measles, the measles virus is still out there. It just has nowhere to go because so many people are immune to it. Um, the flu vaccine on the other hand, um, is not nearly as effective, right? It's, it's like 50%, 50, depending on the strain on the given yep. year, 50 to 70% effective. Um, nonetheless, if you had 90% of the population getting the influenza vaccine, you would reduce the thousands and thousands of deaths that happen every year from influenza because you'd, you'd cut off the virus, right? Um, it's possible that the COVID-19 vaccine, when it's available, could be more like the flu vaccine. And depending on how our bodies react to it, it may be the kind of thing where we need an annual shot or we need a, you guys are probably all old enough to remember booster shots. Yep. Yeah, uh, which less of a thing for for some vaccines now. Um, you're gonna need people to take this seriously, you know. And people with a platform, you know, like the press, like you guys, are gonna have to put, you know, sort of the real information out in front of people. Because if people want to return, listen, if you want to go to the movie theaters to see the Black Widow movie, whenever the hell that thing is, it comes <laughs> out, 
uh, you are going to need to be able to do it safely. And the best way to do that is to be immunized uh, when the time comes. Well, well Grant, what, what always really confused me was um, the, the MMR, right? And you could re yep. you can re refuse it under religious grounds. And which is weird because only, there's only really one religion out there that actually says no vaccines. All the other ones, it doesn't say anywhere in their holy book at all. Um, but is that the only grounds that you're allowed to refuse it on? Well, that and you medically can't take it. Okay. Oh, okay. I didn't. I, medically yeah. I mean, one of the things, yeah, I mean, to your point, I mean, one of the things that happened a few years ago. Um, that there was a, I think it was a Mennonite community or Mennonite or Quaker, and so don't quote me on either one. I don't remember which it was. But I did write about it. It's just been some time that there was a serious whooping cough outbreak because on religious grounds they decided that they were not going to immunize their kids against whooping cough, and lo and behold, whooping cough, whooping cough outbreak. Right? I mean, you got to remember these viruses are all they're 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 organisms of opportunity. Yeah there is a possibility to spread these organisms will find it. They are complete. They have no moral uh, character whatsoever. They do not care. When Trump goes on about how smart the virus is, the virus doesn't even have a brain. It, it, is, it, it is simply functions as a reproducing organism and it will take any opportunity given it to do so. Same with measles, same with rubella, you know, same with polio or Ebola. Which is uh, one of the reasons why Ebola doesn't spread as fast is because you're usually dead by the time you're contagious, right? Yeah, I mean, well, it depends. I mean, there's been some pretty vicious yeah. um, Ebola outbreaks in Africa. Um, yeah. and, and if you want to talk about, I mean, if you want to talk about an example where where magical thinking has caused people to die from preventable disease, look at the last couple of major Ebola outbreaks in Africa. Um, and I think it, you know, I can't I remember which country it was, but the, the one country had had the outbreak and it was bad and it had infected village after village after village. And there was a witch doctor, a literal witch doctor, or we would call them faith healers or clerics living across the border in a neighboring country who said she could cure you if you had Ebola. So people were breaking quarantine, crossing the border to see this witch doctor. Not only did the witch doctor get infected, she infected a bunch of other people. And so now you had two outbreaks, lethal outbreaks. I mean, to your point, yes, if, if a disease is, is really lethal, it will just burn through a population and the pandemic because everybody's dead. We trying to avoid that outcome as best as possible. Um, in fact, one of the interesting things about the, the evolution of some viruses, and there's some evidence now coming out in some research about COVID-19 to this effect, because COVID is not... Yeah, the novel, novel coronavirus is not mutating that much, even though it's spreading wildly. It's the opportunity for it to change is is uh, easily available. In some in some countries, they're finding that it's becoming less dangerous to its host. Right. Um, that is that is because um, it's it's advantageous. That's how natural selection works uh, for the virus to not murder its host. So it gets to live longer and spread. So in some cases, it's becoming somewhat less dangerous, but that's very early on. And uh, we may not, I mean, it, it, there's no reason to think it's going to become, you know, a, a really mild disease. So, uh, well, I mean, my whole thing is when, when this vaccine does take place, and I do agree with you, we need to have some sort of herd immunity. Um, but, but I mean, people's like, I mean, I, I'll be honest, I, I, I don't get the flu shot, but I am now with two young children, definitely seriously considering it for the flu season. Me too. 
because it's now not, I'm not just worrying about me. I'm worrying about my four-year-old and my two-year-old. But here's the thing. Um, Flu is one thing. We've got decades and decades and decades of of evolution and and herd immunity to, to help us with that. We don't with this. And yet my what, what, what I was trying to get at, my, my, my daughter September cannot bring a peanut butter sandwich. Yeah, because wow. people are allergic to peanut butter. Right. It's a different but, issue, though. No, no. My point being is, but someone can still go to school and refuse the MMR vaccine. Yeah. Right? So, that, so my, my daughter can't bring a peanut butter sandwich, which... Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I understand. So there's, there, there's sort of two things there. I mean, the, the first, I just want to make this point on the flu vaccine and why um, it's really important that people get their flu vaccine. It's yeah. every year. And here's why. You, would, you know, the, the six of us are still relatively young. Some of us are starting to show gray hair now, but, uh, you know, we're relatively young. If, if we get the flu, the odds of it killing us are really remote right? You might feel really shitty. You might not even, sorry, PG, you might feel really bad, uh, but you, you won't die. But you could spread that to an elderly person you encounter at the mall who will die. Um, one of the things that I just wrote a story about this, one of the things that hospitals and public health officials are deeply concerned about for the fall and the winter is that if there is a large second wave of COVID-19, that's likely when it's going to happen. Do you know what else all happens at that time of year? Flu. Flu. And if people are not taking their flu vaccine, we could see a double crisis because the flu vaccine hospitalizes thousands of people, usually elderly people, every year. We know from statistics that Niagara residents and healthcare workers are well below the provincial averages in terms of the number of people who get the flu vaccine because it's Niagara and because, of course, we would be behind everybody else. So... We could end up with hospitals that are overwhelmed with flu cases and COVID-19 cases at the same time. The flu, the flu vaccine is not going to stop COVID, but it is going to help us keep the situation from getting worse. And so people need to take the flu vaccine very, very seriously this year. Less so for your kids and more so to prevent our hospitals from getting overwhelmed should we see a second wave of COVID-19. On the idea of religious exemptions, this has been a bugaboo of mine for years. Um, I actually, on a personal level, do not care if you think your, your chosen sky god says you shouldn't get a vaccine. Don't care. You are risking the health of other people. Our, this, is the, this is the thing. We don't even teach physics or physics, uh, civics anymore. Our personal freedoms in a democracy end when they threaten the health of someone else. Absolutely. Right? It's why I it's why I can be a legal gun owner. I could I could have a, a gun for skeet shooting or target practice or hunting. I cannot go shoot squirrels in the park with an AK forty seven because yeah. that's gonna risk the people's lives. I can't do it. It's why we have smoking bylaws that doesn't allow you to smoke in a restaurant because you're you're risking the health of other people. It's why you have to wear a seatbelt because you're risking the health of other people. Um, it's gonna be I, why it's mandatory to wear a mask. Yes, exactly. And, and, and when, you, when, when somebody says to me, oh, well, you know, my chosen God or gods says, I, you know, I don't need to have a vaccine, but I should therefore also be able to send my kid to a public school. I'm sorry. No, it shouldn't be permitted. And to your point, if little Sally can't bring a peanut butter sandwich to school because Joey sitting next to her could somehow come in contact with it and then go into anaphylaxic shock, we have said, you know what? 
that's a reasonable limitation on what I can do. I'm not sending my kid to school with a peanut butter sandwich. Uh, why in the, on earth would we then say a kid who is not immunized against the measles or later now a COVID-19 can walk into the classroom with no restrictions and possibly cause other people to get that, sick? And that's, that's, that's been my biggest beef for the longest time, right? Like it, it, is, it is an insane way to think. Yeah. At some point, we have to say your religious beliefs aren't good enough to put other people. It's not a good enough reason to put other people at risk. Yeah, never, I, I, never will be. I think, I think, I mean, a lot of times it comes to a charter argument, right? It's a balance it of, you know, somebody's rights and freedoms versus another's. But so, when it so comes to enough. the health, I'm, I'm, well, I'm of the same opinion, right? You, you have, it's, it's like freedom of speech. You have the right to kind of say whatever you want, whenever you want. That's the way freedom yeah. of speech works. But it does not mean you are free from the consequences of that speech. So if I stand on a street corner waving a Nazi flag saying, you know, Adolf Hitler is the bomb, there's going to be an immediate consequence that I pay for that, right? And 100%. there's, it, it's sort of like, if you go out on a first date, right? And you tell your date, uh, him or her, that you think Elvis is actually alive. You are going to pay an immediate price, probably <laughs> for, for voicing this opinion. I'm all shook I up. think when it, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, your odds of getting a second date are probably small. Um, I think this is also true; should be much more true for healthcare. And and when the COVID nineteen vaccine rolls out, and if there are people who are trying to make the claim that on religious grounds, you know, my chosen deity says no, well, fine. But then you don't get to come to school, or you don't get to come to the office, or you don't get to go to the movie theater. I'm sorry, other people's health is more important than your religious belief. It's just how it is. And, and, and we, see, we see this in cases where parents don't take, you know, a kid gets meningitis. There was the famous case in Alberta, yeah. which was still rolling before the courts, where this kid died because their parents would not take their kid to hospital to be treated for meningitis on religious grounds. I, I'm sorry, your religious belief doesn't fly. And they could call, that, that kind of thinking causes problems and could cause a real problem for us uh, when the COVID-19 uh, vaccine is finally ready to be deployed. Right. And what would you say the, uh, the percentage of people in Niagara take the flu shot every year? Um, I do, yeah, I just did a story about that. So it's it's 20% or less. Hey, that boggles uh, my mind. So I get it every year and I don't understand. Well, you also Healthcare have workers, a react too, so there you go. It's, it's got nothing to do with that, though. It's that I visit my grandmother in an in old folks home and everyone there has to have it. And I go to visit her and I, I feel... It's disrespectful not to have it. Well, but no, but I, more people I know than don't And you know. shouldn't feel embarrassed about it, Jeff. I mean, no, I don't. I don't. But, but me and my wife argue about this all the time. She refuses to get it. And it's like, you know, like it's ready to end the marriage kind of argument that we get into. Because <laughs> I don't understand why you wouldn't get it. There's, there's no good reason not to do it unless you have a medical reason not to. And by the way, the, the, re, the, the most common medical reason that people can't take a vaccine Vaccines usually have um, agents in it that people are allergic to, right? And that would cause the same kind of anaphylaxis that the peanut butter sandwich would cause in a kid who's allergic to peanuts. Um, but those numbers are very small. Um, I, I, you know, the, these arguments where it's like, oh, I have the personal freedom not to take a vaccine. Yeah, but you don't have the personal freedom to make somebody else deathly ill. Mm -hmm. um, and, and people are being extremely short-sighted 
and they're being extremely selfish uh, when they're saying they're not going to get these vaccines. And I'm telling you, um, in the fall, if there is not a significant uptick in the number of Niagara residents who are getting the flu vaccine, and there is a second wave of COVID, which is very likely, we could be creating for ourselves a real, real problem. It can yeah, storm. just explode. Because the, the, the whole reason we did the physical distancing and the hand washing and the masks was so that we don't overwhelm that. Look what's happening in the States, right? Hospitals are overwhelmed. I did an interview with a, a Beamsville woman who was an ER doctor in New York City uh, earlier in the pandemic. And she told me horror stories about what those hospitals are like because they're so overwhelmed. And that's just with COVID. And by the way, the other thing to pile on top of this, if you really want to think about the nightmare scenario, we get a second wave of COVID-19. You have the annual flu uh, pandemic, which, which is going to make lots of people sick and put hundreds of people in hospital. Now you, but then you've got people who would normally go to hospital for heart attacks, strokes and injuries and other illnesses who are now not calling 911 uh -huh. because they don't want to end up in hospital and possibly get infected. And so when they do finally show up, they're way more sick than they would have been otherwise. So we're in a situation where it's like, the healthcare experts, the scientists, the doctors, the people who know about this, this stuff, whose, whose opinions used to be really respected and, and listened to in our, in our culture, are now being overwhelmed because like Kevin on Twitter uh, read a study on a blog that says that, that, that masks are part of the new world order. This, by the way, is actually what comes out in my emails of the paper. I could read them to you and you would cry. I mean, there are people who think that, well, that it must be it must be the case, though, then, Grant. Yes. Right. Because, you know, it's sort of yeah. like why I've always been uncomfortable with the fact that, you know, um, trains used to have pub public trains used to have a brake wire in, in the car, you know, to stop the train in the old days. And it's like I'm uncomfortable with public transportation where, like, you know, Gus saw a woodchuck. And so he wants to stop the train to get a better look like there's there's a point at which you have to start accepting expert opinions on these things even if those expert opinions shift with data we live in this society where, where yep. we're very uncomfortable with flip-flopping like you know the politician says something today and then takes a different position later i mean jim diodati seems to be a perfect example of this by the way he yeah. was adamantly against a masking bylaw and this is a guy who's shown up in public maskless and not social distancing and he's been rightly criticized for it who said this week no he's now for a masking bylaw we'll see how that plays out tonight recovered but, from cancer yeah but if he's changed his mind based on evidence that's actually a good thing yeah, it is. evidence changes our position on things and and if people don't get their heads around that instead want to listen to like the mom whose gut feeling is that kids are getting too many vaccines. Like, I just don't care because that's not science. The why do you think the flu lives. shot is so low in Niagara? Why, why, from your research, why is it at 20%? <laughs> you know, it, it's the, 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 one of the ways I, I phrase it is somebody the other day was saying that they, they think Niagara region is part of this global conspiracy about masks. It's part of this new world order mumbo jumbo they're on about. And I said, if you really think Niagara politicians are actually part of a Bond villain level global plot. <laughs> you have not been paying attention to the political incompetence of this region for the last four years. Like it's just, not <laughs> I think unfortunately, um, Jeff, there are lots of people in Niagara who for whatever reason 
lean more toward this conspiracy theory, tinfoil hat stuff, mm-hmm. who really think that, you know, there's a plot or that vaccines are bad. There's a, I mean, I, there are people who think if you wear a mask, you're going to die because you're inhaling too much carbon dioxide and it never occurred to them. Why is their dental hygienist never fallen over dead while she's cleaning your teeth? Doctors. Doctors. (laughs) Your brain surgeon has never died from a lack of oxygen while operating on you. I used to do asbestos removal in my younger days. And we used to have to wear like, if you're worried about little mask, try wearing kind of like. Asthmat suit. (laughs) Yeah. You think, you think your mask is uncomfortable? Wait until you're sealed in. Yeah. Right. Ask Chris Hadfield how comfortable the astronaut suit is. He told me a story. I interviewed him once. He told me a story about he was doing a spacewalk, and there's this chemical they put on their visors so they don't fog up. And he had managed to he didn't clean his virus or visor well enough, and he got some of the chemical in his eye. Oof. And while he's doing the the spacewalk and doing repairs on the space station, his eyes tear up, but he's in <laughs> zero G, so the tears just <laughs> just float around in his helmet globulating and there's nothing he can do because he can't touch his face you know like people got to get over this stuff it's a piece of cloth that's going to protect someone else it's really not that big an imposition Uh, i mean my my mask collection by the way is just getting out of hand (laughs) i just have a pile of the i have like the high-end like sports mask from under armor that i can wear when i go to the gym to like a goofy thing that's got the mash tv show logo on the front you know to go to the grocery (laughs) store or whatever uh, but I mean, but to your question, Jeff, there's just a lot of people for some reason in Niagara who are buying into pseudoscience, conspiracy theories, faith healing. We have, um, I don't want to, you know, uh, say it's conservative politics because I think it's way too unfair and way too pejorative, but it tends to be people who lean really, really far right who are into these ideas of global conspiracies and so on, and it's damaging. Well, you've been, our is, color doesn't show that, though, right? Like our, our color, color doesn't show far right. No. Well, I know eighty percent of people aren't far right, and yet eighty percent of people aren't getting them. You know, so it's. I have a you ton of friends it. that don't want to get it. It drives me nuts. I just don't. Understand. I don't even want to argue it. It's like having the gun argument. It, it's well. It, I think it's even. It's even more kind of murky than that. Not far. Like so, I live right downtown by Montebello Park. And I try to go for walks to get out of my, the prison that looks remarkably like my apartment that I work in every day. And not far from me near the Henler Henley bookshop is a tarot card reading place. And that place was still running through most of this pandemic. And I'm sure she's doing gangbuster business. And it's sort of like, have people not clued into the fact that your magic crystals and your faith healing and your tarot cards and the bones and whatever else you think, that does not help you. Listen, here's something for your listeners to pay attention to. There was a book written by Carl Sagan a few years back before he died called The Demon Haunted World. And it's really, he talks about the decline of public respect for science and the rise of, of magical thinking and pseudoscience. And he says in The Demon Haunted World that he, and this is like in the 90s, he feared a future time for America where respect and understanding of science has fallen so far out of the public realm that people don't even know the right questions to ask anymore. And we will return to a dark ages where people are clutching to their crystals and their voodoo dolls in the hopes that that's going to save them. And that's kind of where we're at. I mean, it was a very prescient thing that he wrote. Um, and I really hope that people, un- people will, and I, I'm not sure that they will, 
that 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 eighty percent who is not getting the flu shot um, understand that they really need to because people's lives are at stake if they don't. Well, it's weird. Nope. I, one of the arguments I get a lot of times is the flu shot is just a cash grab for the doctors. They just want to make money uh, out of it. No. no, a lot of times they're five minute inconvenience. The that's all it is. I mean, go back and look at when the polio, I mean, Josh talked to us earlier when you mentioned polio. I mean, when the polio vaccine came out, there were not people protesting the no. polio vaccine. Give me it. <laughs> they were like, give it to me twice. Because we, that was a much more visual thing. Remember, you know, if you go back in history, I mean, people the big were lungs. lungs and their hospital wards were filled with these things and, and, and school gymnasiums were filled with these things. And people understood they had to do this. Right. We, we, we are we live so far removed from a time where measles, mumps, rubella were public health emergencies that we've forgotten why we needed those vaccines in the first place. We're now seeing it again. But we live in a time where, again, some jackass on Twitter can convince people that the scientists are wrong. Well, but shame on those is, people. Shame well, on those people, Grant. But a, but a lot of people have gotten that flu shot and then within a week have gotten sick. And I think that's one of the arguments I get spread around that I hear a lot of. Well, the issue with this, the so specific issue with the flu is um, the flu shot has to be reformulated every year because the, yeah. the, flu, the strain of the flu virus changes. And so right. it's actually a fantastic bit of science, by the way, that we're able to determine what is the, the most common strain of flu and quickly reformulate our flu vaccine to inoculate people against it. But the flu vaccine changes. And remember, the vaccines are not like 100% effective. Even measles is vaccine, not a, even though it's close, it's not 100%. Um, but what it does do is it prevents a large number of people from getting sick. And if you do get sick, your immune response is gonna be that much more vigorous and you're gonna be less sick than you probably would have been without it. Um, people just want to be told that everything is, it's all or nothing, right? It's 100%. But that's even the case with the, the, the flu vaccine annually, right? It's still, even if it, they, don't, they don't target that perfect strain, yeah. it's still going to reduce the yeah. impact that, that, and, that the, the flu has on you. And, and yeah, exactly it. And, and what's at least great about the potential COVID-19 vaccine is we know the exact strain that we're dealing with. This, this virus does not appear to be changing all that much. So if, if a, you know, again, optimistically, if a vaccine is ready by the end of the year, you know, it, it's going to have a really good chance of really tamping down the spread of this virus and preventing disease and making, making symptoms a lot less serious. Um, and again, yeah, I mean, you said it, Josh, shame on those people, because those are people, the same people who are complaining about masks are the ones who think that vaccines are somehow a plot against them. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you do the kind of job that I've been doing, and remember, I'm just a reporter covering the pandemic. I mean, I'm not the guy in the ER who's seeing the, the, these people sure. die in the ICU. Um, but I have spoken to people who were on, you know, one guy who was a 34-year-old on a ventilator for 12 days in a coma, medically induced coma, to keep him alive. And he's still suffering from it. Um, go talk to him and then tell me that masks and vaccines are, are useless, you know? Well, I think it's our generation. I mean, you saw this with the during and then after the Afghan war, the Afghanistan war. You know, our generation for the longest time never had a war. We we never had a war since probably yep. Vietnam, right? So we were so well, Desert Storm, I guess, if you want. Well, not even that. I mean, that wasn't really a a massive war that that no. had you know the coalition of the willing, if I could use Bush's term. Sure. 
um, the, and so I think that's what it is. Like, I mean, I can't even count. I mean, we're, we're all guys on, on here. How many times have you seen a guy leave a stall without washing his hands? Oh yeah. It happens all the time in the men's washroom. Sorry yep. ladies for everyone that's washing and listening to us. Men <laughs> are bloody disgusting. I, I can't, I can't even comprehend that. It just doesn't even compute in my mind. And yet I was, Going through the the graveyard, I'm over on by Queenston's uh, Queenston Road, Queenston Street. <laughs> the, the graveyard there, that's where my grandparents are buried. Oh. And I remember a lot of the um, the nuances that they used to say, like you know, remember build a nest and wash your hands, and like these just little nuances that I still remember to this day. And I looked at the, their date of birth. They were both of them were born within seven years of the Spanish flu. And so they remember like people dying because of this. They were born before the Spanish flu? No, they were born just after the Spanish yeah. flu. But so it would it would have just been it would have yeah. been society so saying, Hey, I mean look, wash your hands. Right? One of the interesting things, you know, and I've I gotta sort of wrap this up quickly, fellas, because I gotta uh, get to a press conference soon, but um just to that point, Brandon, so much of, of the way we live now is the result of past pandemics. Going back, I mean, public health as we know it came into the exist came into existence because of the bubonic plague, you know, right. in the dark ages. Um, the term quarantine literally means four months of time because that's how long they would keep you out of the city if you had contracted the, the, the plague, right? Um, Things are going to change because of this, even beyond the vaccine, even beyond masking. We are going to see changes in our society as a result of this pandemic, hopefully for the better, hopefully because people will take things like we'll see, you know, people 100 years from now will see those kind of artifacts about hand washing and wearing masks. And these things will be, you know, people will understand that we took this seriously. Um, the, the, the thing that I, you know, I don't all the things we're talking about um, are all quite grim. Right. You know, when will we get a vaccine? What will be the impact? How many people will die? How much will the economy be hurt by this? How many businesses will simply vanish and never return? What will take their place? There's all kinds of shifts that still have yet to happen. But I, I would say this to folk. At some point, the pandemic will end. This will not go on forever. How it ends and when it ends is partly up to the way in which we behave. If we social distance, if we wash our hands, if we wear masks, if we take the flu vaccine now, if we are in the fall when it's available, and if we take the COVID-19 vaccine when it's available, it will end faster. And we will, we will, we will establish a new you know, kind of post-COVID normal upon that time. If we don't, then the, vac then the pandemic lasts longer. It will end, all pandemics end. How badly we suffer is really up to us. Yeah, oh, no, I agree. on uh, that note just before you cap it off uh, curry I, I did do a, just a quick search and there was a whooping crane um outbreak um, um in a mennonite community in around guelph 2012. that's that's yeah that's about right that's the one so german speaking th yeah. thanks very much grant we, we want to have you back on um also to probably maybe in the fall again just to kind of yeah close to the u.s election but uh, also, too, I'd like to know, I'd like to also get you, of all people, to give this going forward. It's clear to me that none of our levels of government had a pandemic plan or an epidemic plan. They say that they did, they didn't. And it's because of journalists like you and uh, your team are the reasons why 
politicians are actually Thank getting you. heads out of their yep. ass and actually listening because it is it's out of all of this i am just so ticked off at our at our governments our elected officials for not having a plan in place something a plan a plan mm -hmm. in place and it's clear that they haven't so thank you very much for everything that you and your thank team thank you for having me on yeah, and uh, if you want more info go go to grant's rants on twitter i, I found it very oh, yeah. helpful i uh i follow yeah. it daily yeah oh thank you very much and and thank thank you guys i appreciate uh, your time and your support and uh, we'll talk again soon yes thanks very much thank you take care thanks, help guys. Us fist help bump, you. virtual fist bump virtual help fist bump <laughs> Be safe, let's well, help you. <laughs> we'll talk later. Yeah, yep. Bye. Thanks. All right. See you again. Help us help you stay informed. Yeah, oh. thanks. You looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness? Then check out the Natural Man podcast. Join me, host Mike C, as we explore all areas of human wellness, physical, mental, and emotional. Learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health. Remember, your doctor works for you. Learn biohacks, neurohacks, ways to improve sleep, and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com. Do, did, will, the Story of People podcast is now available on the Cryer Media Network. The first five episodes are here and feature some incredible guests that fit into one or all three of those categories. Ready? Tara Sloan from the San Jose Sharks, Undercurrent Podcast at NBC Sports. Marianne Iveson from Iveson Voice and the Let's Take This Outside podcast to talk about the world of outdoors as well as voiceover land. Ariana Hunsicker, future Canadian Paralympic swimmer, already winning tons of awards for this country. Scott McGregor from the Hot Wallet podcast to dumb down the world of crypto, Bitcoin, and NFTs so you don't have to. And Jackie Holowaty from Climate Pledge Arena in Seattle, Washington, the first net zero carbon certified arena on the planet. Wherever you get your pods, wherever you watch your pods, and on the Cryer Media Network. Produced by Cryer Media and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.